All right, let's open our Bibles now to 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're getting closer to the end of the life of David. I think this is our 57th study in the life of David. Our text this morning is in chapter 23 and it's verses 8 through 39. The topic we're going to see there is that we're given a list of the names and representative exploits of David's personal guard. That unit was called his mighty men. The title of our message this morning, Mighty, Mighty Man, I Just Want to Be a Mighty Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. And Lord, I don't want to be over dramatic, but we know that it's true that you saw us sitting here from before the foundation of the world. You knew every person who would be here. You knew all the words that I would speak. You have us here for a reason. It's probably not the, that you have in mind, and that is to reveal more of yourself to us, to show us how great your love is for lost mankind, for those of us who have come to know you, and for anybody here that doesn't know you. And so I pray, Lord, that all of us would stay out of the way and allow your Holy Spirit to minister in this place. You promise that it won't return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it out. And so, Lord, do a work here. Remind us, Lord, that every time you encountered somebody in the Bible, that life was changed for time and for eternity. And I pray that we would have that sense as well. In some ways, this is another Sunday, Lord, because it's happening right now in your presence by your will. And so guide and direct us, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. And those who agree, said, Amen. Who is your favorite unlikely movie hero? Well, let me give you a few candidates for the top zero to hero. Daniel LaRusso would have to be on that list in The Karate Kid. Unlikely hero. Rocky Balboa in any of the 85 Rocky movies uh, would certainly be there. And there are a lot of comic book characters that would qualify, such as Steve, Captain America, Rogers, and... Peter, Spider-Man, Parker, unlikely heroes. Our text in 2 Samuel is a list of what were called David's mighty men, king. These men were among the distressed population of Israel who were in debt, who fled to live with David in exile. David molded them into the heroes that we read about. Have you ever thought of yourself as a mighty man or woman of God? Well, you ought to, but not because of anything you have done or are going to do to sin. And he began to mold you and shape you just the way David did with these men. And if the result is that they were heroes and and such, then the result is that you also are a hero or a heroine uh, before the Lord. And so I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, if you want to be a mighty man or woman for God or woman for God, just start loving like one. Let's take a look at living like one uh, as we begin our study. Now, we touched on this theme in our last study in verses 1 through 7. There, David described himself as coming from humble origins to being exalted by God. Now he shows us how God did the same. Seven men are listed in this chapter. The relatively small number would seem to support the idea that there can only be a select few who rise above the rest, that there really is a cream of the crop when it comes to serving the Lord. But that's not true. For one thing, there are simply too many other passages that indicate God shows no favoritism every situation. Hebrews 11 would be a good text to read in this regard. Sure, there's a bunch of names in there that we recognize, but there are dozens and dozens and hundreds, perhaps, of unnamed individuals referred to 
who did mighty deeds as well. And for a second thing, you need to take into account that God has a different assignment. A number of mighty men didn't exclude others in other positions from excelling in their service. In other words, you, you might look at your needs and say, well, I only need 30 mighty men, but I also need some mighty counselors, and I also need some mighty priests and uh, mighty singers and all of this kind of a thing. And so, though we're looking at the mighty men and making an applicant to, but rather that we are part of that larger group, uh, those who were humble, who God has raised up. The biggest obstacle to being used by God, I think sometimes, is thinking you cannot be used by God because God has someone else more spiritual than you. First of all, that's true. He on one level could do a better job than you. However, that person is not where you are. I, mean, I always think it'd be great wherever I go if Greg Laurie was with me. And he could just share Christ with people and they would get saved. Or Mike McIntosh or some of these other guys that seem to just look at people. And, you know, they hang out in other places. And, and so though there may be people that are in one sense more spiritual, God says, yeah, but I have you here. You're in Hanford. You're the person that I'm using. And that goes for each one of us. He has you right where you are at. It's like the parable where the master left leaving his stewards with varying... Upon his return, the master rewarded those who had invested their talents rather than hoarding them, regardless of the varying amounts he had left with them. And so they, all of those that invested got a reward, regardless how much he gave them at the beginning. Now, as we read chapter 23, we're also going to see subgroups did more than others, but they were all considered mighty men. And one other note. The chapter indicates that David surrounded himself with 30 mighty men, but it mentions a total of 37. And one possible solution to that is that the number of guys at any one time was 30. That was uh, the full contingent. Certain of them died. For example, you, uh, at the end of this text, you read of Uriah the Hittite. He was originally one of David's mighty men uh, who had died and was obviously someone took his place. So with those details, let's take a look at the characteristics of these men, because we want to see how we, too, are already enabled to be mighty for God. Right. Verse eight. These are the names of the mighty men who David had. Josheb Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. Now, what's interesting to me, this second name, Adino the Esnite, uh, Jet, if you were a pilot, you know, what, what they call you, your, your name, uh, it seems to be that kind of a nickname. It means something like he lifted up his spear. Now, I find that kind of a, uh, a, a calm name for a guy that killed 800 men all by himself. You know, it, it, first of all, it, just, it takes longer to kill 800 men than to hand combat with spears and, and all that. He kills 800 guys. I think you could come up with something more exciting than he lifted up his spear. And so that drew my attention. And, and what the scripture is telling us is that this great victory killing hundreds of enemy soldiers, was attributed to the single simple act of it. And the result was something amazing and impressive. Lesson one is to lift up the spear. Or we might say things like to engage or get involved or step out in faith. Or we could use Bible terminology, stir up the gift that is in you. Offer yourself each day a living sacrifice to God. And so we get not looking at the task, 
not wondering if we're going to do something great or being either underwhelmed or overwhelmed, but just being willing each day to be used by God as this. He was a soldier and he said, I'm going to lift up my spear and just see what comes of it. And what came of it was a mighty victory uh, over 800 enemies. The Ahohite, of the three, uh, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder hand apparently temporarily cramped and he couldn't let go of his sword he had been holding it for so long and wielding it for so long you might say he put his hand to the sword and didn't let go it's reminiscent of jesus words in luke 9:62 when he said no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back as followers of jesus to press on in discipleship to see our service to god as the long haul to want to not just run the race for a time, but to finish well, having started to keep our eyes on the prize and to continue forward. And so here we're talking about being faithful, all can do being faithful. It's all we are really asked to do. The Lord says, I just want you to be faithful in little things. Then I might give you more to do. But just be faithful in little things. And there's a sense in which even apart from Christianity, there's an expectation that the normal average person can be. Chances are you have to be there at a certain time and you have to be on time. Or else you're not going to have a job and it won't matter that you slept in or that your alarm didn't work or that your car was out of gas or that your dog ate whatever or whatever. And none of that will matter. And so there's an expectation in life that I like that in the Christian realm because it's really a, a, an easy thing for us. We can be faithful. And so we ask ourselves this morning, have I flaked out? Maybe I think I've put in my time and it's now me time. I was watching something the other day and they were talking about me time. How, you know, the, uh, you're not really going to know what that means, but I don't think it's biblical. Uh, so forget me time and just do Jesus time and you'll be okay. Be faithful in the little things. Don't be flaky. Verse 11, And after him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. You know from reading the Old Testament and from Old Testament history that the Philistines were raiders. They'd come at harvest time and steal the crops. They were sort of like Hopper in A Bug's Life. They'd wait until everything was anything. They just stole everything. And so they were, they were lazy warriors. And so they, they hung around, you know, and then they thought, oh, hey, harvest time, let's go and kill some Israelites and steal their crops. But they couldn't do that when Shema was around. He stood his ground in the middle of a lentil field. I'd give up the lentil field, by the way, if it was spaghetti. He stood his ground and he defeated the Philistines. Now, the detail that jumps out at me is that the people fled. And so the Philistines came like they always did. All the Israelites fled except for Shema. They left him all alone. Nevertheless, he fought and he won. Being aloneness, you quite literally might be the only believer in your family or at your place of work or in some other situation. 
Are you going to listen to the counsel of our selfish society and feel sorry for yourself that you're all alone? Or are you going to listen to the Lord and stand? And sometimes it's better that other people aren't standing with you because they sometimes just get in the way. At many points in your walk with the Lord, it's going to feel like it's just you and the Lord. And you know what? The Lord has designed those times to see if you're willing to just be with Him. Is or who it is you truly seek. When everything else is stripped away and it's just you and the Lord and you're pining after something, the Lord says, so is this person, is this situation, is this thing, whatever it might be, is this as important as I am? Or can you and I just take our stand here? It's part of His oneness. We normally think of jealousy and envy in the same vein and we think jealousy is always wrong. But God says that He is jealous over you. And, and if you love someone, there is a positive jealousy in the sense that you care about that person so much that you only want what is good and right and best for that person. The Lord looks at us and He says, I know that ultimately my love for you and your love for me is the most important thing. And so I have to put you in situations where I show you what else or who else you love so that you can focus your heart's attention on me. Because that's where your real victory is. We turn to the middle verses uh, in a second, but we're going to look at verses 18 through 39. Verse 18, now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruai, he was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore, he became... Abishai's exploits were a lot like those of Shammah, but he didn't get the same press. You and I are working every bit as hard for Jesus as the guys and gals getting all the glory. Let them have it without complaining. It's Jesus we serve and it's His well done we are seeking. Very human emotion that we have. We like to be recognized. We like to be acknowledged. We want somebody to say, I see what you are doing and I approve of it. You're really going for God. And, and it seems like there's other people, maybe even in our midst, that are doing less from one point of view, from our observation, than we are, than being a Bishai. You still killed your enemy. You're still being recognized by your Lord just in a different way. And ultimately, the recognition that we want is at the judgment seat of Christ and not from men. Verse 20, Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two mitts of the pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. Just, you know, in passing, uh, being around, you know, guys, manly guys, I'm not one, but I've, I, you know, I've been around. These are dares. And so Benaiah's the guy, you know, that you could dare to do anything. And so you, you're, you're, you're in David's troop and there's these two guys. That, those guys look like lions. Man, look at those guys. They're hairy and they're ugly and they're big. Benaiah, go kill those. Yeah, I got them, you know. Then you're walking along, you're in the countryside, it's wintertime and some lion has fallen. I dare you to go down there and kill that lion. Yeah, I'm in. You know, and he's down there wrestling this lion. Then a little while later, there's some, I don't even know what it means, a spectacular Egyptian with a spear in his hand, and somebody says to Benaiah something like, hey, I bet you can't kill that guy with a staff. And he says, ah, you're on. And he takes him on with his staff. He takes his spear from... We'll do it. 
I mean, these are all valiant men, but you wanted to watch Benaiah because he was just some kind of crazy warrior. Any kind of weird situation, he was your guy. And so in verse 22, it says, These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did. He won a a name among the three mighty men. He was more honored than the 30. But man, what do you have to do to attain to the first three? Benaiah was totally committed. He was the guy who volunteered for the toughest combat assignments before you even asked. Still, from one point of view, he did not attain to the first three. At many points in your walk, the Lord wants to teach you to be content. It may be a time, but it's a lesson we each need to learn repeatedly. It's hard to be content when you're abounding. I don't necessarily believe that until I think it through. I want to abound. Abounding sounds good. Wouldn't you love to have enough money and, you know, all the health you need? And all, don't you think, Lord, you know, then I would really be able to... When they had all the things that, you know, all the blessings from God, they drifted away from God. They turned their backs on God. They began to think that they deserved those things, that they had earned them in some way, that God owed them to them, and a pride set in. And there is a, there is a subtle kind of Christianity, you know, that things that the Bible says to do. I've got my little checklist and I'm doing them all. And so, of course, God has to bless me. And and it becomes a thing where you're doing it and not God. And so we need to learn to be content during times of abounding and to continue to humble ourselves and trust in the Lord. It's equally hard to learn to be because the pain and the tears blur your focus on the Lord. You, You can't focus on the Lord like you think you want to because you can't see him through the pain and through the tears. Discouragement sets in. And so we, uh, with the Apostle Paul, we need to learn to be content. He said, whatever stand. Now, I'm not going to read out loud verses 24 through 39. I know it's a disappointment for you. Uh, You want to hear me trip over all these names. But it's essentially just a list. Each verse has two names, crazy Hebrew names and and all. Uh, You can read it on your own while you're In fact, like Jake said, grab a burrito, get a mouthful, and then, you know, try and read. Don't don't you sometimes put marbles in your mouth and try and talk to to get better diction and enunciation? I think that's true, but I'm going to look it up on Wikipedia and then I'll know it's true. Uh, But anyway, they list uh, the other mighty men. And what's interesting, I'm not going to read the role. Do you ever feel like you were just a part of the role? You know, everybody else got some recognition. They got read, but you didn't get read. You're told you are special to God, but nothing really sticks out and no one really takes notice of you. Well, again, Jesus takes notice of you. If your assignment seems small or insignificant or thankless... It's not, because it comes from Lou. I'm the only me, E-E, right? God knows that, so just be you. Now, I hope I've said enough in this section. Mr. Rogers was a famous television character of my era, for those of you who uh, were born, you know, recently. I hope I've said enough in this section to encourage just begin to act like one right where you're at. Just do basic Christian things and have the right attitude. Anyone can get involved, can lift up the spear as it were, can persevere, can be faithful. Let God do the rest. Now in verses 13 through 17, if you want to be a mighty man or woman for God, just start loving like one. In the midst of all these amazing... It happened early in the career of David and his mighty men while they were in exile and on the run from King Saul... Verse 13, 
Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. All right, it might be a little hard to identify with David's desire for a drink of well water when you live in Hanford. Oh, that I might have a whiff of sulfur in my substitute. Substitute ice cream from Superior Dairy. Oh, that I could have seasonal peach ice cream from Superior Dairy. Or I, I take their vanilla. They have an unusually delicious vanilla. Don't they? Or the lemon. Oh, man. All right, so David, he's got a little longing for... He has a, you know, I, so you get the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, took it and brought it to David. These guys risked their lives to get David a canteen full of water. Nevertheless, verse 16, he would not drink it, poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. He would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. That's unexpected. Instead of drinking the water, David poured it out to the Lord as an offering. Well, now there's two things at least that stand out from this story. The first thing to me is that David's men acted on a desire David voiced Rather, they were so attentive to their captain and to his voice that they knew what he wanted and they acted without being given any direct orders to obey. Let's try to relate that to walking with Jesus. Too often the Christian life can be reduced to mechanics. Sadly, sometimes we want to know what is the minimum. I'm always looking for orders to obey rather than just listening for the Lord's heart to understand the Lord's desires. Perhaps an example would help. We all know the importance of having daily devotions with the Lord, of setting aside that precious personal time, quote, and wonder what your reaction might be. It goes like this. Most Christians have been taught to set aside a daily time for prayer and scripture reading. It's what we are supposed to do. Well, Jesus didn't command that we have a regular time with Him each day. Rather, He tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, extravagant, unending love, not with a cursory quiet time, but with true love expressed through our lives. How would you react to that? Well, if you react by thinking, great, now I can skip devotions and sleep in tomorrow, you've missed the point. That's, you're, you're missing the heart of God. But aren't we all, even as a time where we're learning about the Lord, but not loving the Lord? And so it's a challenge. It's a little bit of an adjustment to our way of thinking. So yes, devotions are important, but not the sense that I keep a specific period of time and that I do that every day and that God will bless me if I do and He can't bless me if I don't. In mind and soul and strength, I understand that you have to work and raise a family and do some of these other things, but really, all of your time is devoted to me and some of it goes to these other things. Rather than, Lord, 15 minutes of my time goes to you and all of it, uh, the rest of it is mine. Here's another way of looking at this. Can and cannot do. I wonder this. People ask me this. You've had these feelings before too. Uh, the typical ones, can, can a Christian dance? Can a Christian smoke? Can a Christian drink alcohol? What kind of entertainment is acceptable for a Christian? 
in answering those questions, we tend to go to extremes of either legalism, these rules, and we say, no, you're not going to be spiritual at all if you do certain of these things. And others say, well, I'm not only I'm going to do them, but I'm going to do them right in front of you and stumble you, and I don't really care because I have my liberty. The actions of David's mighty men seem to indicate that we can know the very desires of Jesus Christ for our lives. Yes. Have you ever been in a situation with your children, if you're raising children, where you think, you shouldn't even have to ask me that. You should know the answer to that question if you know me. And, and it's, it's almost offensive sometimes when they would ask you something. Uh, but that's the idea here is that if you really know the Lord and are listening to His heart, other people... So here's a question. I'm a Christian. Uh, as a Christian, can I do this? Let me ask another Christian. Why aren't you just going right to the Lord? First of all, I mean, it's bad enough that you don't already know. Why not go right to the source? Go to the Lord. Can I do that? Can I do that? Because the answer you're going to find, some of you can do some things and some of you can't. It's a matter of faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And so this is a, you know, there are personal issues, individual issues that only you can answer. And so we shouldn't really be asking other Christians. We've, we've now removed ourselves from asking the Lord. We should at least ask the Lord. But what I think is that we don't even have to ask the question. We just know. And so we see something or something comes our way and we say, yeah, I'm not interested in that. Why? Because you have a list of things you can and can't do? No, because I just I don't think that would honor the Lord. I don't see how that could honor the Lord. I, I wouldn't do that with Jesus. I don't have time for that. However you want to put it, you have a sense. The second thing that stands out from this story is that David poured out the water as a sacrifice. What do we really think about that? If you had risked your life to get David a drink of water from Bethlehem, knowing that that was his desire... How excited would you have been about him just pouring it out on the ground and saying, yeah, I can't drink that. It wouldn't be the right thing to do. Oh, I'll drink it. And she broke an alabaster jar of precious ointment on his feet. Kind of a similar situation. His disciples, representing us in a certain sense, they were furious because the ointment was costly. But Jesus was excited. He commended the woman because of her symbolic gesture and said that wherever the gospel... If you are following the Lord, at some point in your life, uh, at some point your life rather, is going to seem as if it were being poured out on the ground, wasted and lost. Others will see it that way. Sometimes other Christians, they'll look at your life and say, what what are you doing? That's a waste. This can even be worse. No one sees it. You go for weeks or months or years or decades or an entire lifetime serving the Lord and no one has any idea that you've been pouring out your life before the Lord and it seems like a complete waste, just as if you took water that was precious and just poured it out on the ground and watched it evaporate all of that and it's not wasted if it was for him. He sees it as a precious offering to him. David Livingston, the great 19th century missionary to Africa, once said this. He said, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. I never made when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Now, put that into perspective. Paul tells us to offer our lives a living sacrifice. There is a sense in which we understand sacrificial giving and all. So it's not wrong, but what you think 
when you start to think, hey, I'm really sacrificing a lot, well, comparatively speaking, but not when you compare it to what Jesus did. And if it's for the Lord, if I'm sacrificing for the Lord, I know I'm in His will, and it seems like I'm being poured out, no one sees it, or people see it and they don't care about it, as long as it's for the Lord, He on the cross. And there's a sense in which... When the Lord died on the cross, I mean, we look at it as, a, as glorious, knowing all that came out of it, all that came before it. But when it happened, all his disciples were gone. There were a few angry people in the crowd mocking him and jeering at him. From one point of view, his movement had come to an end. Rome crushed. I mean, his life literally being poured out, his blood spilt on the ground as they pierced his side and blood mingled with water came in. A wasted life. 30 years as a carpenter in Nazareth, so what? Doesn't even rise to the level of Home Depot. And then three and a half years of ministry that end up in history, oh, not true. And so the Lord knows what it's like to pour Himself out. And He expects us to do the same and to trust Him. It's too easy to become mechanical in Christianity. We're prone to that. We like steps and we like to be told exactly what to do. We schedule the times we're going with him. Isn't it the other way around? Hey, even in life, if you want to see your doctor tomorrow for some reason, are you going to call and say, hey, doc, I'll be there at 2.15. See you then. What? No, you won't. You'd be lucky if you're here three weeks from now at 2.15 because I'm busy. That's why I love people. Are, this is not about diet. They're busy. So you go to the doctor and the doctor says, your, your illness is serious. You're, you know, there's things that people could die from this. You need to see a specialist. You can see a specialist in six months. Hopefully everything will be all right, you know, because they're busy. You don't say, okay, so I, this is serious. How about I just take my chart and I drive to Stanford right now and specialist for my disease right now because this is, after all, this is the time I have set aside for it. I've got things to do in Hanford. I miss the water. So no, it doesn't work like that. So the rest of our entire life, we are subject to people telling us, yeah, this is when I can see you, this is when... And then we come to God, but then I've got, you know, I've got these other things to do, and Wednesday night's not really going to work out. Uh, Sunday morning, uh, you know, if they had a third service, it would be better. Uh, you know, so, you know, and, and so we, you know, we are the ones who think we control our time for God. We tell him when he's going to meet with us. It's just the wrong way. We're going to give to God while acknowledging that everything we have belongs to him. Every Christian would say, oh, you know, your belongings, your money, your possessions. It all belongs to God. Luckily, I'm in control of it and I don't have to give any of it back to him. Or I give a certain small percentage that maybe will grow over time. So we're just we're backwards on this. And he says, hey, guys. Your life would be a lot better off if you would love me with all your mind and heart and soul and strength and if you'd have a little bit of a different perspective on who's really in charge of these things. Uh, Your life would just be full and rich uh, with the blessing of the Spirit of God. And so the truth, their lives really were poured out on the ground before God. David took the water and he said, this water represents the blood, the life of these men, because they could have died. They sacrificed everything to give me this water. The best thing I can do with it is give it to God. 
And I think those three guys understood that and were like, of what Jesus says when he comes back in his second coming to his followers and he said, hey, you visited me in prison, you clothed me when I was naked, you fed me when I was hungry. And they said, Lord, when did we do that? He says, when you did it to the least of my, you did it unto me. And so there's a, there's a perspective here that these guys have that we need to draw into. And so we need to judge all of our heart, mind, soul and strength because anything less is not worthy of His love for you. Amen?